0: If we look back two hundred years, uh, and 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 as they solve it, um, and also the construction, I, I mean, till now it's 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 astonishing, and um, yeah, and m- most of all astonishing that today we do this again, and I think nothing has changed. It's still one of the most complicated uh, um, complications that we have in watchmaking. <laughs>
1: Welcome to IWC Podcasts and the fourth episode of It's Complicated, a cultural history of complications. I'm Roshunda Tramble, and this week we're looking at the history of the tourbillon complication and IWC's role in that history. Now, before you press pause and head to Wikipedia, the tourbillon is a watch complication that originally was developed to counteract the effect of gravity on a watch. That's the short version – Our two guests can give a much better explanation. Thomas Goyman is Head of Movement Research and Development at IWC. And someone you may already be familiar with if you are a watch history enthusiast is David Seifer. He's curator of the IWC Museum. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. We have Thomas Goyman. He is head of movement and research for IWC and also David Seifer, curator of the IWC Museum. How are you doing?
2: Perfect. Thank you. You're yeah. a- <laughs> All good.
0: All good, Rasuna. Thank you.
1: <laughs> all good. Okay. So let's, let, first off, for, for the people who do not know, tell us, what do you do for IWC? Thomas, why don't you
2: start? Well, uh, I'm I'm a a trained watchmaker. I learned watchmaking from the scratch, disassembling, repair, assembling uh, clock works, and um, after this training, I went back at school, uh, obtained an engineer degree, and had then the luck to realize some movements, new movements for IWC, and. That's 15 years ago, and I'm still working in the R&D department. And with my team, we're responsible for the new IWC calibres.
1: Do you sometimes miss the watchmaking aspect?
2: Uh, yes, for sure, because watches, movements are such wonderful uh, products, and it really makes fun to assemble them and to uh, make them alive. So that's an important part, and I can imagine that for our watchmakers, that's uh, just a wonderful uh, trade.
1: Okay, so we're going to get into the tourbillon in a second, because you, played in a, a, you play a very important role in that. Well, let's get to David. Hello. David. Hi, David. <laughs> and so what's your role at
0: IWC? So my role is, um, yeah, it's related to the past. Um, I mean, uh, the department Museum and Corporate Archives is uh, responsible for yeah, taking care of the heritage of IWC. and. As you know, we are founded in the year 1868, there are a lot of records that have to be preserved in our archives and yeah, I think it's very important, you know, to really taking care of all this knowledge um, that has been there for all these years. And on the other hand, um, I'm taking care with my team for the museum and the museum is the way how you can experience IWC and the history um, when you visit us. Um, we are open for the public. The museum um, from Tuesday to Saturdays, so there you can see what it has been um, in these one hundred and fifty years when it comes to watchmaking, and it's a great job. I mean, I joined uh, the company in the year two thousand and seven, when the museum was opened, and yeah, it's always interesting every day. You yeah, you see sometimes new sources, you get um, in touch with old vintage watches you never see before so it's always interesting and every day you learn more
1: and, but you're it wasn't that you just just joined IWC what was your path to IWC because you have a very interesting story
0: yeah interesting and um, really coincidence to be honest i mean um i started at IWC like I said 2007 and my first objective was only to ask um if I can access uh, to the Corporate Archives, and I approached um, this to Hannes Pantley, who was always taking care for history and had uh, always an, an open ear um, when it comes to this topic. And then he introduced me to the former curator of the IWC Museum, and then she said, hey, David, if you like, um, you know, to research. Uh, we we." we need someone who's taking care for the corporate archives because there's no structure nothing and so it would be very very helpful if you do an inventory you know look what is there and then by the way you can do your research and i said wow cool um currently um my last uh, job is ending so perfect match i started and here we go um now since 2007 a long time and yeah it's absolutely great but it wasn't just research you were doing your Doctoral thesis, yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, for um, the yeah watchmaking in general, this is what I wanted to do. But um, all of a sudden, when I saw, let's say, the untouched sources you know records that have been there um, without being you know explored so Mm -hmm. to speak it was quite quite interesting to see and then um, I talked with my with my doctor fathers there in the university and they said okay if you like to focus on the um, business history of IWAC go on I mean um, it's interesting and if you have a virgin-like bunch of uh, sources perfect and then you can show if you are able to do scientific research yeah and I did at the end of the day, and um, I changed then my whole thesis to the topic, history of innovation at the IWC. And yeah, if you look deeper in, in all that, you see that there has been a lot of things and also very innovative in the sense of the whole switch- watchmaking industry. And, you know, discovering this, this was, was very, very satisfying for me.
1: How do you get to the point where you're doing a PhD in basically what, in, in, in this subject? How academically how do you get to that
0: yeah i mean this really started very early i mean um since i was a young kid because um my mother she's um oh she as a hobby she's goldsmith And so she was always looking for old jewelry, you know, to reassemble new structure. And then in the 1990s, uh, you know, um, nobody was interested so much in old vintage watches. And then she, um, for coincidence, gave me, because my Swatch, my quartz watch doesn't functionate when I was um, 14 years old, an old automatic uh, chronograph. Which was um, a Heuer, um a Monaco, you know, this, yeah, uh, this yeah. uh, nice construction. <laughs> and then I was uh, I, I became really curious what this is all about. And then I, you know, yeah, I went to the library and I talked with a lot of friends. And you know, the mechanical timepieces become more and more interesting. And um, of course, then you you know, IWC was in those days very famous for the Da Vinci. And it was very funny because I I know I said one time I will own IWC Da Vinci, but never could imagine that I will work for the company. Yeah, and and so it goes. I really did my or made my passion um, as a profession for then for the doctoral thesis because I said, if I do something complicated, time-consuming, sometimes very, very boring and disappointing project, um, then it must be something that always all day, you know, you get some some kind of kick out of it and means that you, um, yeah, motivate yourself to go on further and dig into uh, further into resources. Yeah. And, and this was the topic with IWC. And yeah. So
1: what was it like to have access to all of that information i mean i've, I've been down in the archives and that room and you walk in and to be in the middle of all of that history
0: great i mean um if yeah for every historian i mean if you have the chance so you are really the first explorer of um you know unknown landscape so to speak um it's always um a really really a treasure and 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 and, 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 and yeah and, and a very gifted situation because you can um let's say interpret the sources as the first one you know maybe sources are interpreted like this another one would uh, do it uh, in another way but anyway i mean um, being kind of the first and, and 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 discovering um yeah something as the first this is this is what i can say this is like this scientific uh, spirit and uh, yeah you feel kind of an explorer
1: Okay. but you've you've got an interesting story getting to IWC. What about you Thomas? What was your 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 path? You said you you trained as a watchmaker. Did you start out as a kid saying I want to be a watchmaker?
2: I was uh, always uh, fascinated by mechanical by engineers, by precise uh, uh, products and I had a chance in in Solothurn. There's a watchmaking school I went there for uh, two days, just uh, for a training to uh, get familiar with uh, with this topic. And I came back, and uh, for me it was clear that's so interesting. That's what I like to do. And I started this this uh, uh, apprenticeship.
1: And then you did the apprenticeship, and then you became.
2: And then. Uh, a lot of different brands, they are in the Swiss-French uh, part of Switzerland. And because I'm, I'm Swiss-German, I was looking out for a Swiss-German brand. And there was uh, Schaffhausen. And, well, I went there and uh, started my career there.
1: So what was your first project at IWC?
2: One of my first projects and so far uh, biggest project was the Cideral. It took almost uh, 10 years to develop this uh, project.
1: It's the Citadel Scafusia. Citadel Scafusia.
2: Exactly, Schifusia. okay. And I got this task uh, as a young engineer, and we realized first prototypes that just took uh, uh, some research and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of different prototypes. And then we had a uh, working prototype, and we knew well, it will take at least another 2 years to bring that to serious production. Okay, so
1: for someone who's not familiar with this watch, the yeah. can you explain it's it's not just a watch. It's like a piece of art
2: almost. Exactly. It's today still one of the most uh, complicated and expensive Products we have, and it consists of different uh, elements on the on the on the front with the constant force tourbillon, which is new uh, for IWC, and on the back with a wonderful uh, star chart. And if there's a customer, we really uh, design this watch for him, and we create the star chart on the back for for every single customer.
1: And so, and so again, let's let's get into the story of this this watch. So this was your project. Mm-hmm. And how did it go? I mean, take us through the process.
2: Um, it was a really, really small team uh, working on that project, the, the engineer and uh, prototypist. And uh, in those time, it was really difficult to get prototypes uh, prototypes, and it one part, uh, we waited at least 24 months to get to get some examples. So it's uh, just during a long time, we were purchasing all those parts. And it was a a big highlight. uh, When the first prototype was assembled, then we started to adjust all the details to work on on every single part and to, to make them even better and uh, perfect. And yes, we ended up with a really interesting and a nice product.
1: When did you know, okay, this is it, nothing else, we're finished, this is perfect? When did you know that?
2: Um, such a, a project, we we saw it, um, we saw the development during uh, ten years, and it's 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 never done. There's always uh, a small detail we try to do better in the next project or for the next uh, for the next watch. But finally, if the watch passes the final test, we know we're ready. We can sell it because quality and technology is, is fine, is proven. And so we we know because laboratory gives us the OK, we can sell the product.
1: Okay. And so the Citrol has, a, of course, has a, the tourbillon, correct? Yeah. Yes. And we're talking about the tourbillon today. So let's take a couple of steps back. What is the purpose of of a tourbillon? Uh,
2: If you talk about a tourbillon, we also have to talk about uh, gravity. Gravity is an enemy of the accuracy of a watch. And if we uh, change the position of a watch, we also change the precise rate of a watch. And so the first watchmaker or uh, 1795 watchmakers, they developed a mechanism to compensate this uh, error. They didn't solve the problem, but they found a way to compensate it. And they just put the whole escapement inside a small cage. And then let rotate this cage around its own axis once a minute.
1: Okay. And let's talk about the beginnings of the tourbillon. It was developed by
0: um, Abraham Louis Bruguer, right, famous uh, Swiss uh, watchmaker, and like Thomas said, I mean, this is absolutely uh, correct. I mean, they, they, the watchmakers all back like you guys, um, always were looking for the best preciseness, what you can get with your watch, and I mean. I mean if you look, it, it it's gravity and it's it's not that much. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But as a watchmaker, you always want to achieve the best and the best. And then they uh, really wanted to make this happen via the construction, the turning tourbillon.
1: Take us through the development of IWC's tourbillon.
0: Yes, I mean, this is a quite interesting and I would say unique story because the idea the basic idea to bring an uh, tourbillon into the world of IWC watchmaking came really from the watchmaking school from the students there um, because they wanted in the 1980s um, to make their own construction of a tourbillon based on the classical construction of a flying tourbillon and When I say unique stories, because there's a lot of background to understand the whole story. I mean, if we go back to the 1970s, um, a lot of people know there was a real severe crisis for all Switzerland watchmaking because the quartz movements came up. But it was not, for example, for brands like IWC, the quartz movement was devastating. It was for us more or less, let's say, um, the uh, trimester. the severe changes in the exchange rate, so the Swiss franc um, compared to the US dollar was becoming very, very strong. And if you take in consideration that all the watches were well um, um, weighted in, in US dollars, and then over the sudden, you can say um, in one or two weeks, the price was uh, falling. Uh, in in kind of the Swiss rank, this was devastating. And also in the 1970s, there was the uh, crisis situation, you know, um, with, um, you know, uh, in the Middle East, oil crisis, etc. And um, this everything had um, an impact on the Swiss watchmaking industry. So uh, what IWC did, the uh, management in those days back, it was um, Mr. Homburger um, and and his staff with Hannes Pantley or the other guys working there. They said, we do have to do something very special to make IWC, the brand, the watches, interesting for people who love still mechanical watches. And um, we can't compete, you know, with mass production. Of quartz. this is not IWC and this is what we can't do in Schaffhausen. so at the end of the day, they decided to develop um, complicated movements, Pocket watches, you know, in the nineteen mm-hmm. seventies, um, for watch collector aficionados, people who appreciate all that stuff. And in the same time, you know, in England, for example, um, um, Daniel's the watchmaker had a lot of experience with um, pocket watches, was was highly appreciated. Uh, in Germany, for example, the first Lange Ausstellung, uh, excuse me, the first Lange exhibition mm-hmm. was set up. So with these uh, watch connoisseurs, there was like a trend back to uh, to 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 uh, pocket watches.
1: So, so still with pocket what? watches. With
0: pocket watches, which which is kind of weird, yeah. Which is in it, the
1: nineteen seventies. Which is in
0: the nineteen seventies. Well, I would say a ninety percent of the customers they wanted these really flat um, quartz thin uh, watches, but there was a small tiny little market, and then they started to. Or they said we need one skilled watchmaker, Mister Kurt Klaus, to. To do something, <laughs> in a way, this was kind of uh, description of the project. And in 1977, for the first time, IWC launched a complicated pocket watch, and it was sold out immediately. And then, the- not to interrupt you, just a quick question: Who was
1: that marketed to? Who was like the 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 persona that would that would purchase something
0: like that? Um, Unfortunately, we do not have like a CRM system. Right, I know, of course, of course. But it's very important. I mean, um, what you said, because they didn't know. They either didn't know, like you asked. I mean, they didn't know, but the watches were sold. So what we think is that most uh, of these uh, watch collectors were, let's say, people who really admired mechanical pocket watches uh, and don't want to go with the trend. And so you can say um, what IWC did was... I call it the counter-revolution against quads, because it was really, really focusing on the back, but not being old school, you know, to do something new, but um, with a technique that maybe in the future, as they thought in the 1970s, will have no future. Because there's also a very interesting story. I mean, not a lot of people know that, for example, the Swiss government stopped in the year 1976. That young people should be trained as mechanical watchmaker everything was completely shifted to um, um, let's say um, quartz of course but also electro and iwc was really one of the only companies who said we have to keep this up and here the watchmaking school was also very innovative with the person walter baumann who was the director for, uh, of the watchmaking school since 1968, when it was opened. And he was really, really pushing um, the government that they keep up with the education of young watchmakers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the late 1970s. And so these... I would say not only training, um, but also the mind setting. If you study watchmaking, if you want to be a watchmaker, then you have to go for something new, you know, reach uh, new boundaries. And so he gave his students always some kind of challenging projects and was always supportive. And so last but not least, we come back to the Tobio. One of the students in the, I think it was in the late uh, 1980s, asked the teacher, Mr. Bauman, if it is possible that they make a tourbillon.
1: Do you not find it interesting that you had these young people who wanted to make a tourbillon? And exactly. this is something that's a classic. This is a classic old school type complication.
0: Absolutely. And um, I think it was like, you know, the conversation with the train, uh, with the trainers like Walter Baumann or um, there were others like uh, Karl Kerber or Mr. Harbring who were teacher. And, you know, there was this person passionate guys you know talking about watchmaking and you know the good old times what what we may say and i think this let's say um yeah was 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 making these um kind of attention to this classical complication like the Tubio, and you know then the idea you have to look in the old books for example you have to study um where are there some patents um that we can use where we can you know use as a base, and so they started. But I'm 100% agree, I mean, interesting that these young guys were always a part of the innovation process, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. And wh- wh- I, we, we need to say here also on the IWC website, there is a very interesting story that you can download about the Tourbillon School and the Apprentice School, where you can learn more about that and more about the impact of Walter Bauman. You brought his name up, and to some you know, watchmaking connoisseurs, they know who Walter Bauman is, but just in, in, in uh, just very quickly, who was Walter or who is Walter Bauman, and what was his impact?
0: Um, Walter Baumann is uh, or was the watch, uh, director of the watchmaking school since the year um, 1968, uh, and he joined IWC in the year uh, 1961 as a young watchmaker. And uh, a funny story, he met, for example, in, in uh, after being only for three weeks at IWC uh, know Mr. Peloton and you know had a conversation with him and you know um, he knows uh, or he knew a lot of uh, persons there and then it was decided that he could take care of setting up a watchmaking school for IWC because they the management in those days they noticed that there will be a demand of really really skilled people you know if um, they want to perform very very well and keep up in the future And so this was his task and with full of his heart. He was a teacher, you know, from if you talk to him, he's always explaining he's, yeah, it was his passion, you know, to work with young people and make them better. He told me once, it's not my, uh, not my thing that I will be in in the spotlight, no. If my students, my talents will make it to be really good watchmakers or make a good career in the watchmaking industry, then I'm more than happy. And I can tell you what, if you summarize it, I think it was 2000, no, no, excuse me, 250 IWC watchmaking students and, and, and women and men um, that he trained and they are now at IWC, but also at other brands and you know um, are very, very uh, well-skilled uh, uh, watchmakers and this is great.
1: So let's get back to the, the tourbillon and maybe we can talk about some of the technical challenges uh, with the tourbillon and and working with that. So Thomas, take us through the technical details and all the things you have to think about when you're working with one of those or trying to develop one.
2: First, we can explain or, or give a short overview of the different tourbillons we have at IWC. Well, we started to develop the First flying tourbillon, That means there's no bridge above. It's uh, mounted on the just on the bottom. If there are different tourbillons, uh, and we always try to develop them and to improve them. For example, we increased frequency, uh, make them smaller. As for the for the sidral or, or or lighter, if we add it in a in a existing movement. Then today it's. Uh, Often a dem- uh, demand if we try to set the time, it also should stop the turbion cage, so we can adjust the turbion to the second, and so the the newest uh, turbion has this uh, technology. And for sure, we're always working on on next generation turbine. And if we try to add such a cage in, inside uh, the movement, it takes a lot of space. There are another additional eighty parts we have to add at the movement, and that makes it uh, often not so easy because there's not enough enough uh, space and uh, and uh, uh, room for. For, for such a case. And then we all have to redesign and redefine a lot of, of different uh, things. For example, the barrel, the mainspring, the energy, and so on. And uh, we have to um, to to create uh, or to find the right material for those tourbillons. Uh, they should look uh, filigreen and, and just beautiful on one uh, hand. On the other hand, they should be robust and reliable. That makes it a bit uh, difficult. So the engineer has to, to choose the right material uh, design. Then together with uh, the watchmaker, there are only uh, a few watchmakers w- which have the skills to uh, produce, pre-assemble, assemble, and adjust uh, such a tourbillon.
1: So, what type of materials and that you normally
2: would use for a tourbillon? Um, often, there are some parts made out of titanium because it's 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 light. Uh, we also uh, use steel uh, parts and uh, the the material we find in the whole in the whole movement.
1: Okay, and how this may be an unfair question, especially since you're R and D. But how far can you go with a tourbillon? before it's like okay we can't innovate anymore it's just this is it i mean is there a is there a limit to it
2: there's no limit in Mm r&d if you just take (laughs) another uh three months you start to uh, dig and you find something interesting and you will create finally something brand new and interesting and that's the reason why uh r&d is such an interesting uh job if you have something you really like to work on it you can go into detail and create something which is absolutely new
1: another question though about the tourbillon is it do you really need one in a watch today because isn't the technology now where gravity i mean of course gravity is the enemy but you can make a watch now where a tourbillon isn't needed or what would you say
2: uh, from the pon- point of view aesthetics and uh, craftsmanship, uh, tourbillon is absolutely necessary. But <laughs> if you try to create a precise watch, you can do some watches without tourbillon for sure.
1: So, are there people out there that you have met, some watch enthusiasts, where they just have to have this complication in their watch? It's their favorite. Have you encountered these people?
2: Um, yes, you you love it or you hate it. There are some, they're just, they they like it, they love it. They uh, want to have it on the dial at 12 or 6 o'clock or or 9 o'clock position. And they're really proud about this uh, masterpiece. Some prefer a bit understated watches they put it on the back
1: because it can sort of yeah. it it's a tourbillon is there yeah it is it's, a, smac, it's smack dab on that dial so
2: it's a clear sign it, it's yeah. a clear sign it's a, it's a statement it's a, exactly It is a statement. watch lover and that you uh bought a uh, expensive watch and so they like or they prefer it to uh put it on the back and if somebody is really less interested in tourbillons of the day just like uh, chronograph or minute repeater and so on yeah so for everybody there's a a specific field uh, uh he prefers david yeah i would say um
0: it's some something mystical about the tourbillon you know if you talk with collectors and you know if you the world I think it's it's worldwind, you know, to be your uh, in English and um it it's a must have because if you are interested in in watches, I mean yeah, everybody is writing as tubio as the most complicated thing in the world that you can have in a watch and i think this is why a lot of people they want to have it and it's it's very very nice like thomas said i mean some they want to show it say hey hey this is a tubio um i like this nice movement when it's rotating um on the other hand there are others uh, to want to hide because if you know you have a tubio maybe not the others should know something like that and it's the most important that you know wow I have it, and this is like really the um, Champions League of watchmaking. And as Thomas said, I mean, it's so fascinating. I think in IWC, there are only one or two watchmakers um, assembling the tourbillon. So really a few people who, who are willing it to do and have, you know, the patience to do.
1: Do you, Are there people coming behind them that know how to do it if you're saying there are only two
0: yes we can train of course right. we can train um, but um, it's 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 kind of challenging it's kind of challenging so um, if you are manufacturing watches and then you have a design and lucky and thanks to Thomas and his team we have an IWC tourbillon with a constant force which is hey straightforward mm-hmm. um, then then you you made it as said then you are a player in Champions League and then and, and the watchmaking world will, will appreciate that
1: and Thomas earlier you mentioned the constant force tourbillon and that it is part of the sidderall could you explain a little bit more about this constant force tourbillon
2: Mm -hmm. Um, the goal was just in the beginning to create a movement with a wonderful big tourbillon at 9 o'clock position and because of the gear train and the barrel and so on the torque um, driving the escape wheel is uh still moving a little bit, goes up and down and that's the reason why we develop this constant force mechanism. There's an additional spring on the escape wheel and we arm the spring every second and this spring drives then the escape wheel and the balance with a constant torque or the constant force and that's also the reason why this tourbillon jumps in second steps. And this additional escapement, the constant force escapement, we added on the tourbillon cage, and there are other uh, small and really, really precise parts we had to add on the, on the tourbillon, and they had to be up to one micron precise.
1: Wow, okay. So the constant force tourbillon, let me backtrack a bit. Is there, is there a particular type of watch that can take a constant force tourbillon or can you use a, a constant force in any any type of watch that's designed for that?
2: The design we use mm-hmm. today is built especially for the sidereal movement okay. and the uh, and, uh, engineer in Portuguese with a uh, constant force. We can imagine to do it without uh, tourbillon, mm-hmm. just uh, use this uh, mechanism and maybe we'll, we'll try to make. Those uh, mechanism a bit smaller and to so that we can use it in in, in all the uh, movements.
1: The constant force tourbillon and like the history of it of it at IWC. Do you see it see that going forward, or is it perfect the way it is, or what do you think?
0: Hmm. Good question. I mean. As I'm not a trained watchmaker, I would say, hey, what you achieved, guys, is perfect, I think. Um, but, you know, also listening to Thomas, I think, um, you know, there is no, like, uh, end of the uh, of the horizon. And, um, I think you guys want to go on and on. And I think this makes it so, so interesting. And, you know, now it speaks the historian and the archivist out of me. Now, for us, it's very important to really... Um, archive, you know, all the knowledge of Thomas and the team and the documentary and the process of development to really save this uh, in, into the archive because maybe in fifty years there will be another discussion um, um, about uh, with with IWC employees. Uh, this podcast to- can l- go into the archive, <laughs> exactly. then. okay, that yeah. would <laughs> be the best because then uh, no, um, absolutely, this is this is this is uh, the type of records we also need, and um, yeah, and I think um, based on that. Um, yeah, there will be another development. But personally, as I said, I mean, I'm so super impressed with the constant force tourbillon, and I was so happy, you know, to see all the lounge with the sidéral and and uh, yeah, it's great, absolutely.
1: What about um, if we looked at the Breguet design and the IWC design of the tourbillon? What are the what are the differences or similarities between these two designs? How would you compare it?
0: You know, as not being a watchmaker, the first I would say is, I mean, from a technical perspective and material perspective, it's completely different. Like Thomas mentioned, I mean, the first uh, Tubio at IWC um, that we launched in the um, Il Disturiero Scafusia, um, the famous watch that was launched 1993, 425 of IWC, uh, the Jubilee. It has a titanium cage. Um, It was very, very lightweight and, you know, um, also the way how they uh, were making the small parts, this was quite innovative in a way. And so I think this is from the manufacturing process quite different uh, to Mr. Abraham Bergri. On the other side, I mean, watchmaking is very traditional. So you respect what has happened before. But you make slight little difference, and not to overspread this quote with uh, you know um, the giants and the dwarf is standing on the shoulder. But <laughs> I think this is this is a good picture to say always a little bit more on based on this huge treasure of watchmaking.
1: Okay. And Thomas, how do you feel about that?
2: Um, if I'm right, I, I think uh, Mr. Um, Berger he just took a, a bigger movement. He had enough energy, enough space to integrate a tourbillon. Everything was a bit uh, bigger. Um, he had enough, uh, another uh, type of escapement, another type of uh, of uh, s- um, spiral. And so we can't really compare the tourbillons the we have today and the tourbillon he built. But it was the first... Um, um, watch uh he was able to show and everybody saw well it's it's possible and during the time uh every new generation of watchmaker was improving and slightly modifying this this first uh, tourbillon and now we ended up with a uh, with a smaller uh tourbillon we can even put into uh in wristwatches with another with a higher frequency and I can imagine he didn't build so many turbulence uh in those times today we uh, achieved a level that we can do that in a small series production and they're reliable they'll do um, um they will survive shock test and so on so it's really difficult to compare those uh, watches, but for sure they have the same uh background uh, they came they are inspired by Burgess Turbio.
0: And maybe if I can say something that comes in my mind if you talk about I mean the capacity of making or let's say manufacturing um, a certain quantity of watches. You know all of you guys know uh, mr um, Pelaton, um, albert pelaton famous iwc constructor and uh, his uncle was very famous for making tourbillons james Pelaton. he was uh, i think also a teacher in the watchmaking school in de for and i think in during his whole lifetime being a watchmaker it was not more than 50 tourbillons he made um, i have to go into the figures but you know this is what thomas said i mean imagine in a lifetime of watchmakers not more than 100 and now um with the processes the engineering um thomas and the team did i mean this is a little bit different Uh.
1: okay gentlemen thank you very much for explaining the tourbillon and history of the tourbillon and iwc tourbillon how um really the the sort of a beautiful impact that it has especially on the design and the look but i have another question the final question Thomas, (laughs) what are your three favorite IWC watches, and they can have a tourbillon or not have a tourbillon, and why?
2: I'd like to start with the Portofino hand-wound, eight days, because that's one of the first movements we developed when I came to IWC, so that's my first product so that's I, close to your heart that's close to, it's my it's my baby okay <laughs> and for sure the pilot watch the time zoner, because it's such a nice interaction between the bezel and you can adjust the time zone and so on that's just in 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 my opinion it's just a brilliant okay really i agree brilliant. with that yes yes and, it's beautiful and um, for sure the sideral Scafusia because it took we, we we spent 10 years of my life together and that's uh so it's still uh, a, a huge relation between that product. So that's also your baby. You have <laughs> yeah. lots of babies. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. David?
2: I mean,
0: you know, this question is quite unfair. Oh, to be come honest, on. <laughs> to be honest. Because, you know, uh, my team and I, we are responsible for what you can see, 230 different timepieces uh, in the museum. And I can tell you back there, deep in the dungeons of IWC. Uh, We have approximately 900 up to 1000 watches and movements um, to document um, the whole history of IWC. And, um, you know, if you have to deal with these watches, if you make, for example, the uh, annual inventory, you see this nice design and I can tell you what, it changes these questions every day. Because there are always some favorites and, you know, some best. You're going
1: around the question. going around, but (laughs) I have
0: to make a point and this is what i will do okay and so my all-time favorite um, unfortunately i never uh, designed the watch but my all-time favorite is um, of course the uh, engineer 866 which is from a design perspective absolutely brilliant it was introduced in the year um, 1967 as a successor model of the very first engineer and you know if you look at the dials and you know um, the design and it's it's absolutely beautiful and inside there is an iconic iwc movement the 8541 um, uh, mm-hmm. um, and yeah it's it, it's a great watch it's an all-time classic you can wear it every day and it's it's just beautiful um the second watch, um I would here say it's related to the calibers. So one of my all-time favorite wristwatch calibers at IWC is the caliber eighty-nine and you find this caliber, for example, in the Mark Eleven, mm-hmm, famous yes. navigational wristwatch. And and also in very beautiful um watches of the nineteen fifties, sixties. You know, they have no complications, they show you the time only. But if you look at it, and, and then also the inside, the finishing, it's absolutely brilliant. So if you can find such a vintage watch, wow, it's it's incredible. Um, and um, we are talking about the uh, tourbillon, um, yeah, I would say sometimes, sometimes, maybe. Um, the Portuguese are the first tourbillon mister. I think, you know, like the flying tourbillon at 12 o'clock position that's that's also beautiful and this is what i said i mean if you can make it you have this tourbillon on your wrist and you love watchmaking voila here we go nothing more you're just satisfied uh when you can look and how this tourbillon is turning and flying with the const, uh, construction and yeah this is absolutely great so here we go this would be my three favorites of today
1: David, thank you very much. Thank you very much, gentlemen. David Seifer, curator of the IWC Museum, Thomas Goyman, he's head of movement research and development. Thank you all for taking time to come into the studio today. Thank you for listening to the IWC podcast series, It's Complicated. A Cultural History of Complications, and this episode where IWC museum curator David Seifer and head of movement R&D Thomas Goyman give insights on the history of the tourbillon complication and they also tell us their interesting IWC stories. And we must also say that this is the last episode of the series. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did sharing it with you. So, until the next IWC podcast series, take care.